nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, our featured interview is with Dr. Christopher Busby, a British nuclear scientist who has been representing UK nuclear test veterans in a major court case. Along the way, he has uncovered and been sharing some remarkable new information about the impact of low-dose radiation, which he will talk about today. This is game-changing information, if we can ever get it taken seriously in the nuclear game. That's just part of what we will talk about with Dr. Busby. And this week, we start a regular series of reports on international issues with Sean McGee, based in Ireland, and now Nuclear Hot Seat's special European correspondent. Plus, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's Nuclear Reactor Duck and Cover Report, on what's gone wrong with those aging, dangerous rust buckets this week, and more honest nuclear information than was visible during the live international television coverage of the Tournament of Roses Parade, though kudos to the No Dakota Access Pipeline protesters for getting real visible in the background of NBC's coverage. All of this will be coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, January 3rd, 2017, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting off in the U.S. at the Hanford site in Washington State, where radioactive contamination is spreading within one of Hanford's huge processing plant, and the problem could escalate as the plant, unused since the 1960s, continues to deteriorate. A new report on the highly contaminated reduction oxidation complex, more commonly called redox, recommends that $181 million be spent on interim cleanup and maintenance of the facility. Work is needed to reduce the threat of contamination spreading outside the building, including by animals, a break in a utility pipe, or a fire and annual inspection of some parts of the facility from 2012 to 15 found an escalation in the spread of radioactive contamination by precipitation, rain, that had leaked through the roof and joints of the concrete building. Rain in Washington State. How rare! In New Mexico, regulators have approved restarting what they are branding as normal, put that in quotes, operations, at the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant, or WIP, site, the nation's only underground nuclear waste repository intended for World War II nuclear weapons waste. Almost three years ago, on Valentine's Day, February 14, 2014, a 55-gallon drum of radiologically contaminated waste that was inappropriately packed at the Los Alamos National Laboratory exploded underground, contaminating the entire underground area with radionuclides plutonium and americium that escaped out the ventilation shafts and into the surrounding environment. Under pressure from the Energy Department and outgoing Energy Secretary Ernest Moni Monies, who wanted to leave with what looked like a clean slate, on Thursday, December 22nd, the WIP site was declared open, though nobody defined exactly what open meant. Watchdog groups have questioned whether the state's decision was predetermined, given the push by the U.S. Energy Department to reopen before the year's end. Don Hancock, director of the Nuclear Waste Safety Program at the Southwest Research and Information Center in Albuquerque, said the state should have looked closer at implications of inadequate ventilation and the accuracy of air monitoring underground to ensure worker safety. 
He pointed to a recent federal report that found vulnerabilities in the facility's radiological protection program and separate deficiencies recorded by the Federal Mine Safety and Health Administration. Meanwhile, at the other end of this nuclear fuel chain, at the Los Alamos National Laboratory, some 60 other drums, also containing a potentially combustible mix of organic kitty litter absorbent and nitrate salts, have been under 24-hour surveillance. And Los Alamos has been spending nearly half of its roughly $185 million annual environmental management budget on recovering from the mistakes that led to the WIP accident. Meanwhile, other sites around the country are chomping at the bit waiting to ship their waste to WIP, particularly Idaho National Laboratory, with more than 600 shipments in the queue. All that dangerous radioactive nuclear waste and nowhere to put it, so they rush to open WIP even though, well, we'll see whether it holds or not. And in this numbnuts-adjacent story, which falls under the category evil numbnuts, in North St. Louis, the Environmental Protection Agency has chosen a contractor to investigate claims and laboratory tests that show radioactive waste has found its way into a home adjacent to the Westlake landfill. And that contractor is one that has other contracts with Republic Services which is the company that owns and operates the Westlake Landfill. Conflict of interest, anyone? On the website of Mike Grogozinski, who is the quote-unquote expert who has been hired by the EPA, he touts that he and his teams have worked with top-level industry clients, including Republic Services. Yeah, sure, that's going to be an objective report. Not. And if that's not scary enough, it's time for the nuclear reactor duck (laughs) and cover report. So many to catch up with. At Palo Verde in Arizona on December 15, an alert was declared. That's two steps up on a four-step scale to kiss your ass goodbye. That's because there was a catastrophic failure of an emergency diesel generator. An explosion resulted in visible damage to a safety system required for a safe shutdown. And they don't know what caused it. (coughs) At the Columbia Generating Station in Washington on December 18, the plant experienced a full reactor scram based on a reactor high pressure trip. (coughs) A twofer at Sequoia in Tennessee on December 13, water-containing radioactive tritium spilled into a storm drain. The NRC labeled it inadvertent. And on December 30th, Sequoia experienced a manual reactor trip due to the control rod not withdrawing as expected. Ain't that what they always say? (coughs) Fermi and Michigan must be in some kind of competition nobody else knows about for the most reports, the most NRC events in less than half a month. On December 14, technical specifications for secondary containment pressure boundary were not met numerous times because of high winds. Happened again later that afternoon. And that same day, a sanitary sewage leak deposited approximately 100 gallons of sewage into the storm drain system. A trifecta for Fermi, but wait, they're going for the record here. High winds again on December 14 and December 15 makes it five event reports for one reactor in a two-week period of time. Way to go, Fermi. (coughs) At Salem in New Jersey on New Year's Day, a non-licensed employee was confirmed positive for alcohol. Happy New Year. Planning on setting off some fireworks, dude? Plus, two for Perry in Ohio, one each for Vogel in Georgia, LaSalle in Illinois, Oyster Creek in New Jersey, North Anna in Virginia, and Cooper in Nebraska. I really mean it. Duck! (coughs) Turning to international news, you will be hearing more during this program about the UK's nuclear veterans case. But while the British government denies that there was any impact on the soldiers and sailors who were present when the bombs went off on and around Christmas Island in 1956 through 64, 
About one in seven of the men in a sample of 1,014 who responded to a questionnaire circulated in, ni- in late 1997 did not father any children after they returned from the weapons tests. Those who did are convinced that the high incidence of birth defects that they have noticed and have documented in their children and grandchildren was caused by their exposure to radiation as young servicemen. For example, among the nearly 5,000 children and grandchildren on whom there is information, there are 26 cases of spina bifida alone, more than five times the usual rate for the United Kingdom. In Japan, The Tokyo District Court has dismissed an appeal by TEPCO shareholders calling for disclosure of a government panel's records of questioning of executives regarding the March 2011 crisis at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. That's because the questioning of executives was conducted on condition that it would not be used to assign blame. In other words, the nuclear get-out-of-jail-free card. And now... Nuclear hot seat... Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that sound a week. Mm-mm-mm. Don't you just love to munch on potato chips? And now there's a new flavor. Not cool ranch, but hot rad, as in radiation. That's because a citizen food testing project found Fukushima-related radioactive contamination in a bag of Japanese potato chips. The chips were harvested and manufactured in 2015, with the potatoes coming from Ibaraki and Chiba prefectures, both of which are outside areas normally flogged by the Japanese government as having agriculture at risk of contamination from radiation from Fukushima. Kampu, the testing group, found both cesium-134 and 137 in the chips. Mm-mm-mm. The brand, Cal-B, can be found in Japan, and is also sold globally, including here in the good old U.S. of A. So go chow down on some hot chips with some hot wings. Bet you can't eat just one. Baccarel. And that's why, Cal B. Potato Chips, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out a week. This week, we're pleased to introduce a new weekly feature. Sean McGee has Nuclear Hot Seat's special European correspondent. Sean will be covering a range of international issues. Now, this week, for those not yet familiar with some of the people Sean mentions in this first report, know that Geraldine Thomas is the controversial head of the Chernobyl Tissue Bank in the United Kingdom, and she works for Britain's Ministry of Defense, challenging the impact of radiation on health issues. In Japan... Shunichi Yamashita is the nuclear apologist famous for claiming post-Fukushima that if you smile, radiation can't harm you. In case you couldn't tell, neither Yamashita nor Thomas look kindly upon Dr. Busby's work. And the Nobel laureate mention who has criticized the reduction in thyroid cancer screenings in Fukushima is Toshihide Masakawa who was awarded one quarter of the 2008 Nobel Prize in Physics. This is uh, Sean McGee reporting on behalf of Nuclear Hot Seat as the European correspondent, and I am based in Limerick. First off, I'd like to mention that uh, as Chris Busby is doing the interview today on the main show, I should report that there's been an update on the British nuclear test veterans case and we have received the judgment, and it just came out just before Christmas, very quietly, and much too late for us to catch the markets while everybody uh, nestled down to their Christmas break. Chris will be challenging the uh, judgment, and he's just preparing that now, and uh, we'll be hearing from him in the near future. From the report itself, the only health effects from the 20,000 veterans who were underneath the plumes of these nuclear devices, there has only been one health effect that has been actually accepted, and that is one cataract in one of the test veterans, and a cataract in his eye, obviously. Otherwise, no other health effects have been accepted by the Ministry of Defence. 
Now, the two health experts from the Ministry of Defence kept their arguments out and they said that there were basically going to be no health effects and Geraldine Thomas, who is one of them, said that there'd be no effect that is provable under 100 millisieverts. And that is a very common thing that we find from the UK and the Japanese nuclear health experts. The second update is from Japan. And there has been a report that has come out that's about a campaign that will be put in place now uh, because of the misrepresentation of the thyroid cancer statistics. And, of course, the nuclear industry has said uh, their two experts are Professor Yamashita, who once declared that radiation is good for you, and, of course, uh, we have our friend Geraldine Thomas coming in again and saying that the, the reason for these thyroid cancers are because of new screening techniques and that those cancers were already there. Now, of course, that's a contentious issue, and in the recent December World Health Organization report uh, for cancer, they said that low-dose radiation over a period of time will cause cancers. So that's under 100 millisieverts, and which does cause some issue with the British nuclear test veterans' judgment. We're going to link to this, but it has to be said that a Nobel laureate has actually stepped in on this one, and he has basically said that uh, he is behind it, and at the end of the day, he's not very happy at all with what's going on. The Nobel laureate's name is Professor Masakua, and he is incredibly angry with the idea that Geraldine Thomas and Professor Yamashita want to reduce the actual screening for thyroid cancer in these young people. And, of course, we've got recent Mancini, I think it is, uh, report that is basically saying that there is 147 cancers caused by this screening process. But also there was another report out just before Christmas uh, which was looking at the fact that nine children outside the prefecture have also come down with thyroid cancer. And also, because of the slow way that they're actually doing these screening processes, that one of the children actually had the cancer move into their lungs. Now, lastly, about the thyroid cancers, there was one last leaked document that came to my hands, and I found there was five major points. This is a very scientific report. It all the breakdown of all the thyroid cancers and looked at how they were derived. There are five points here. Point one was that the age group in the Fukushima Medical Hospital that they gave, they didn't include the 10 to 17-year-olds uh, that were affected in the first year of the disaster. And this skewed the public figures, obviously, for the thyroid cancers. The second point was that the lack of early testing and with the sophisticated equipment led to the distortion of figures and continues to do so. And so the third point, ignoring the findings from Chernobyl, uh, which they did, is criminally negligent. And the fourth point is that figures of actual cancer rates are played down in the media, and they state that there's 147 confirmed cancers when there are actually 183. And these don't cover the nine reported cases in the outlying areas around the uh, Fukushima prefecture. And then very lastly, the misreporting and skewing of the data of the UK's thyroid expert, Professor Geraldine Ann Thomas, and Japan's expert, Professor Yamashita. They're basically now trying to limit this testing to hide these cancers to reduce the compensation and support to the victims and their families on behalf of TEPCO. And as we see from the earlier reports, uh, when we look at it in a, a, a sort of a larger way, that there are some issues there. Uh, this uh, article and all the scientific sort of assessment that went with it uh, is on the uh, Nuclear Hot Seat webpage. And I'd like to wish you all a happy new year from here in Ireland, in Limerick City, and uh, we'll be getting back to you next week with another report. That is Sean McGee reporting from Ireland. Welcome aboard, Sean. We'll be hearing a lot more from him in the coming weeks, and on this week's website we will have a link up to a full article 
about the UK nuclear veterans case. On our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 289. A reminder that Nuclear Hot Seat relies on your donations to help us keep bringing you the verifiable nuclear news along with interviews and snark. All the information you've grown to respect and rely upon. Help us keep bringing you all the bad news about nukes and the great news about actions taking place around the world against them by sending a donation of any size to NuclearHotSeat.com. Just click on the big red Donate button and follow the prompts. Whatever you can do to help, you have my gratitude. In this week's interview, we talk with Dr. Christopher Busby, Chris to his friends. He is a British nuclear scientist who has been active, effective, visible, and often controversial for his ability to not only get the work done, but get it noticed. We last spoke with Chris for Nuclear Hot Seat number 266 on July 26, 2016, about his work on the UK lawsuit to gain compensation for British veterans exposed to nuclear radiation while on military duty. As you've already heard, the decision in this case went against the veterans, for some very specious arguments, if you ask me, and it was announced on December 19th that time of year well-known as a journalistic dead zone used to bury inconvenient stories. Chris and I spoke for the interview on December 16, three days before the verdict was announced, so you'll be able to hear his hopes regarding the verdict and his rationale for them, as well as his frustrations with the legal system. You recently published in the ecologist.org an article challenging the lifetime study of Japanese A-bomb survivors, and this is a very big deal. Could you tell us, first of all, how you came to be aware that there were flaws in this study and what the import of this study is? Well, first of all, the article in The Ecologist is just an article in The Ecologist. But what's important about it is it refers to a letter that was published in quite an eminent journal called Genetics, published by the uh, American Genetics Society. And this is a peer-reviewed paper or peer-reviewed letter. And what it says is that the, the lifespan study of the Hiroshima survivors, the Hiroshima and Nagasaki survivors, was dishonestly manipulated in 1973. And as a result of this, all of the results that are taken from that series of studies are invalid. Now, the reason why that is important is because all of those results are results that feed through and form the basis for the current radiation risk model. So, in other words, when they define under the law that you can't get more than a certain dose, and this is the law in America, you know, nobody can be given more than uh, one millisievert in a year, and also in Europe, there's a, a law called the Basic Safety Standards in which they say that releases to the environment aren't permitted if they give members of the public more than one millisievert. And I'll tell you, I'll talk about what that means later on. But it defines the kind of dose that you can get from radiation from a nuclear site or from depleted uranium or, from, or basically from any practice involving exposure to radiation. Now, all of those laws are based almost entirely on this risk study of the Japanese survivors of the atomic bombs at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Explain what that study was and how it came about so we know what you are referring to as we move forward. After the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, there was a lot of anecdotal reporting of increases in cancer and there was a lot of fear about the effects of radiation. That was in 1945. But nothing much was done until 1950-52, when an, an outfit was set up called the Atomic Bomb Casualty Commission. And what they did is they set up an epidemiological study in which they decided to look at the people who were exposed to the gamma radiation from the bomb, what they call the, the prompt radiation. That's that they were standing out at the open, in the open at various distances, or sometimes they were shielded. And they got various doses of external radiation from the gamma rays and the neutrons. And they wanted to look to see whether those would, over their lifespan, cause an increase in ill health of any kind, cancer or, or other types of ill health. So they chose groups of people and selected them from the population in Hiroshima 
according to how far they were away from where the bomb exploded. And that gave them a sort of definition of the kind of dose. And they also chose a group of people who weren't even in the city as a control group. So these people were people who came into Hiroshima and Nagasaki after the bombing, up to months after the bombing. So they hadn't been exposed to any radiation. So they were a control group. And so this is quite a reasonable epidemiological study. It's how you would do it. It's not perfect, but it's pretty good. And it's kind of all you could do. So you look at people who've been exposed and you compare them to people who were not there, who weren't exposed. And then over their lifespan, you see how many cancers there were in the exposed people and how many cancers there were in the unexposed people. And obviously, the excess cancers in the exposed people, you relate to the dose that they got. And that gives you a relationship, very important this, between radiation dose and cancer, right? So that's what you're looking for. That's what you want to get out of this. You want to get how much radiation dose causes, how much cancer. And this was okay up until 1973, when I found out quite recently, this last summer, through various experts that I looked at, and also from digging into the, uh, forensically digging into the literature associated with this, that in 1973, they abandoned the control group, the people who were not in the city. And the reason they abandoned them is because they considered that those people were too healthy that was really the reason. They even wrote that down. They said that the people were too healthy who were not in the city. Now, the thing is, if the, the other way of looking at, at them being too healthy is that the people who were exposed to radiation were too unhealthy, because all you're doing is you're comparing two groups, do you see? So in 1973, they clearly discovered that there were too many cancers for their convenience, for what they wanted you know, to come out of it. And so they discarded their control group. Now, that is dishonest. That's dishonest. But not only is it dishonest, it, it means that all of the data that, it, that came out of that is invalid. It, it's, it's suspect. It can't be used for the purposes that it should be used for. And of course, the purposes that it has been used for is to define the current radiation risk model. So the current radiation risk model is completely false because the basis for that model is dishonestly manipulated. That's basically what my article in The Ecologist was about. You've now labeled this study a monumental fraud. You've had other phrases that you've used for it. But given that we are using a manipulated model of risk as the basis for understanding what risk is now, how is this playing out in terms of justifying the nuclear industry in all of its many forms? Well, the point about justification is that if you set up a process or a project which has the potential for causing contamination that can kill people, and you accept that that's the case, and you just say, well, it's not going to kill many people, then you have to justify killing people. You have to say, well, we're going to have this project, this nuclear energy project, because it's of greater advantage to society as a whole, and that outweighs the fact that we might kill a few people. I mean, they, they more or less accept within the current risk model that they're going to kill some people. Although, when you do the calculation, actually, that's not a small number of people. I mean, we can come on to that. But they start off by saying that all radiation exposures have to be justified. That's at the basis of all radiation law. So that's at the basis in Europe of the European Basic Safety Standards um, Directive, uh, the Euratom Directive of 1996, which is now updated in 2013. And I'm sure that there's a similar clause inside the laws that pertain to the exposure of people in the United States. You've got to say, well, because we get an advantage for society, we can accept that a number of people are going to die. So that's justification. Now, the point is that if you get it wrong, if it turns out later on that the basis for your justification, that is to say, like so much radiation produces, let's say, for example, as it is at the moment, one millisiever, which is about half of the annual dose from natural background radiation, if you look at it like that, causes a death of, of one person in every 10,000 people exposed. And that comes directly from the BS7 report, the United States BS7 report. So one millisiever caused one death in 10,000 people. You can say that in a, a population like, um, and in fact in the ecologist I use the population of Paris, which is about 10 million, you're going to have 1,000 people will die. And, that, and that's actually the law, you're allowed to do that. That's, that. That has been justified. So in other words, it's been justified that every year 1,000 people in Paris can die as a result of an exposure of one millisiever. 
Apart from anything else, I mean, I think that's rather immoral, but still, that, that's what the law is. But the problem is this, that if the model, which is based upon the Hiroshima study, is wrong by some factor, and it turns out that it's wrong by a factor of upwards of 100 times, then instead of 1,000 people dying, you're going to have 100 times that. 100,000 people are going to die. Now, that's a massacre. So, in other words, you cannot possibly justify that. Well, anyway, built into these into the Euratom Directive is, is what I call a suicide clause. It was built in, in 1998 as a result of a meeting that I had with Alexei Yadlikov and English Mitzvah Harker and all my mates in Brussels, who were invited there by the European Greens. And we suggested that they put some sort of suicide clause in, because at that time evidence was emerging from Chernobyl that they got it wrong. And, and so, so they, they, they put, put it in there, there and that clause is still there in Article 6. It says if new and important evidence emerges that there are mistakes with the current law, in other words, that the consequences of radiation are much worse than are currently modelled, then all of the practices involving radiation have to be re-justified. In other words, they've got to shut all the law down to start again. And that's the importance of, of what it is that we're saying, what it is that we found in this flaw that we found in, this, in the model that is at the base of the entire operation. For those of us who don't live in Europe, give us a sense of what the Euratom Treaty is and what its power is or what its influence is over the interpretation of radiation risks. Well, the Euratom Treaty was originally set up in order to ensure that nobody ran off with nuclear materials and that there was some control over uranium. But with regard to its application in terms of radiation risk, in terms of the harmfulness of radiation and laws relating to radiation exposure, the Euratom 9629 law was set up in order to control the amount of radiation that people could be exposed to. So it's actually the law in Europe, and it's a pan-European law. It, 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 was, it was put in place because different countries in Europe had different laws relating to the amount of radiation, for instance, contamination that they could get in food. So, for instance, in one country, you might get so many becquerels of contamination in food would be permitted. In a different country in Europe, it would be different. So there were all sorts of problems with cross-border trade relating to contaminated materials and so forth. So it was an attempt to make it all uniform across the whole of Europe. And so they wrote this directive. A directive is just what is this their name for a set of legal structures. Uh, and that was passed into European law in 2000, in May 2000. So it has to be European law in every single state in Europe. These regulations that come in under this Euratom Directive have to be adhered to. So everybody has to do as, as they're told. And if they don't do as they're told, then it's an infringement and then they get fined and all the rest of it. So it's a proper law. And one of the things it says is that nobody can be exposed to more than one millisievert. Another thing that it says is that it's based on the radiation risk model of the International Commission on Radiological Protection. And the other thing that it says is if, is if that turns out to be wrong, as a result of new and important information, then the whole thing has to be rejigged. They have to make a, a completely new adjustment to it. And that's what we're trying to force them to do now. And in fact, any person can do it. And you know, the way it works in Europe is that any citizen can write to the justification authority or write to the Euratom people in their own country. And, and they are listed because that's part of the Euratom Treaty. Uh, is that there has to be a contact person in each country and that person has to be available or, 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 or listed somewhere so that you can write to them and anybody can write to them and say, look here, there's a problem. One problem is this one that I've just raised, which is that basically the entire epidemiological study on which the ICRP model is based is wrong. But there are also lots and lots of other bits of evidence out there which are basically they've ignored. There's another paper that I wrote with English Mitzvoy Hacker and Sebastian Flugbar, which was published in January 2016, which shows that there was an increase in congenital malformation and heritable defects after Chernobyl in nearly every country where it was studied in Europe. And what that shows is that the error in the ICRP model, the error in the Euratom Directive, is 1,000 times. It's not as well, I was saying upwards of 100, but in that case, for, for congenital malformation in children, it's upwards of 1,000. So what you're challenging is the basis for the nuclear industry justifying itself and its existence. Yes. And 
I can't imagine that is being met with any great cheer by the industry and by the powers of be. What kind of pushback have you been experiencing? Well, it's a big deal. I mean, the pushback at the moment, there isn't any. At the moment, there's a sort of horrified, stunned silence. And they've written back to me and said that they will look into it. I've talked to the head of regulation in England. She phoned me up and she and I suggested that we have a talk about this. And she said she'd think about it. So are they taking it very seriously? And I have to say also another very sinister and rather weird thing has happened. And that is that in this court case, because we presented all this stuff in the court case to a high court judge, Sir Nicholas Blake. And normally those court cases are decided on within about six weeks. So he has to go away, look at all the evidence and then write a decision. And this is the court case dealing with the atomic veterans in England. That's that correct. Right? Yeah, that's correct. Right. You see, because this, this, this argument about the failure of the risk model is, is, is how we came into that court case. So that was our main piece of evidence. We came in with experts from Europe and from Japan to show that the basis, the risk model, the Japanese lifespan study model was wrong. We brought in Professor Soji Sawada, who's a very old man now. He actually got blown up at Hiroshima. And he, he brought in evidence about this, showing that this risk model was wrong. So all of that evidence is now, has now been put in at the highest level in the Royal Courts of Justice in London. And uh, nothing has happened. It's been six months now, and we still haven't heard a decision from the judge. It's extremely unusual, this. And we goodness knows what they're doing. I mean, I can't imagine what's going to happen. It's like we've bowled them all for six in some way, or at least I like to think that, and they're just like, don't know what to do. They're just running around in circles. So there's no pushback. I think at the moment that they haven't figured out a move. And in this case, if they decide in favor of the veterans, in essence, what they're doing is giving validity to the points that you are making, which then, of course, would have reverberations in the international industry. I mean, it's not as if they don't know that. I mean, there were people there who, uh, you, you know, no, nowadays nothing is a secret. And in any ways, you know, anybody could come in and sit on the, in on that court case and the transcripts are available and so on. So everybody knows what it was we were doing. I think probably a number of people in the industry thought that we wouldn't make the case. But in fact, we made the case very strongly. And the experts that the Ministry of Defence brought in to oppose us were really utterly pathetic. And in fact, they didn't oppose us at all. They just went straight past us and talked about the dose and said it was too low. And they made no comment whatever, despite the fact that the judge asked them to, about all of these points we made about the failure of the risk model. So I think really in terms of just straight logic, if that judge follows it through in terms of the logic of the argument, then we will have won that case. But the problem is, you see, Libby, that if we win that case and if we win this point that I'm talking to you about now and that I put in the ecologist and all of the things that we're doing now, it's probably the biggest shakeup. Well, I can't even imagine anything similar. You know, it's an enormous shakeup, enormous political and, and, and economic shakeup of, of the whole world. It's a big deal, big deal. What are you doing to both, or is there anything you can do to follow up on this delay in the decision on the atomic veterans case? And what else are you doing to attempt to put forth this information that you have discovered in larger venues? Well, there's nothing that you can do as far as the judge is concerned. I, I talked to the solicitors who were, uh, we, we took this case with another load of solicitors who are quite a posh outfit called Hogan Lovells, and they know what the law is much more than I do. And they say that, in fact, that there's nothing you can do. The judge could just delay his decision more or less forever. And if I put myself in the shoes of, this is what I like to try and do, is to put myself in the shoes of my opponent, you know, the, the chess player that I'm playing. Now, two things here. The first thing is that if I were the Ministry of Defence, I would recognise now that I've lost this case. And also I would recognise that since I've lost this case, it will have these all these ramifications relating to nuclear energy and nuclear power and, and nuclear submarines and weapons and depleted uranium and all of this stuff. And to say nothing about uranium shares. And so I think, well, what can I do? Well, I, mean, I have to say what I would do is kill the judge. I would sort of poison the judge. Well, all right. Well, that, I mean, I'm not entirely joking here, actually. My friends are just laughing at me. But I say, well, what if the judge is actually in intensive care? See, the other judge died. 
Which other judge are you talking about? In the same case, in the same case. We, this case has been going on since 2009. And uh, it was heard in 2013. And in 2013, the solicitors for the veterans just threw me out just before the case was heard. And so my evidence never went in then. And we appealed that decision and it went up to the appeal court and we won the appeal and it came back to this court again. But in the meantime, shortly after that decision was made, because when they threw me out, they lost the case. So my evidence didn't go in. And the judge, the then judge, Hugh Stubbs, he ruled against them and he ruled on behalf of the MOD. So the MOD won that case, you see. MOD being Ministry of Defence? Ministry of Defence, yeah. The Ministry of Defence won the case on the first round and then the judge suddenly died of pancreatic cancer. He disappeared. How did that impact the case? Well, it, it impacted the, the appeal because we were going to ask him why it was that he ruled that I couldn't be an expert. We wanted to put him on the spot there about that, but he disappeared. But there was no problem with this most recent case or this most recent hearing that you were considered an expert for it. Well, no, I wasn't. They, they wouldn't let me be an expert on this one. I mean, we went up to the appeal court. We won the appeal so that we could hear the case again. But the judge in the appeal court said that Busby couldn't be an expert, not because he wasn't an expert. The Ministry of Defence wanted me thrown out because they said I wasn't an expert. Anyway, this was absurd, you know, because I've written more than 35 papers in this area. So he said, no, no, it's all right. He is an expert, but he's biased because he's an activist. You know, he writes things in The Ecologist and he chains himself up to nuclear power stations. And, you know, generally he's not the kind of person we want in a court as an expert. So he said he can't be an expert, but he said there's no reason why he can't be the representative. So then I went in as the representative and I brought in a load of experts who were other people to make the point. By representative, you mean you came in as one of the attorneys? Yeah, as the attorney, yes. And I believe we discussed this previously on Nuclear Hot Seat, that that worked out pretty well for you. It worked out very well, yes. The guy who was, I was going to do it with had a heart attack and went into hospital. Then my daughter popped up and she did it. And she's a clever person. So she and I did it together. And we did pretty well. We did okay. All it was fantastically stressful, I have to say. It was three weeks standing on my feet saying, you know, yes, my Lord, no, my Lord, on the other hand, my Lord, and all that stuff. But yeah, sure, it was okay and it was done. So now my Lord has disappeared. I mean, we've got like six months and we haven't heard from my Lord. So, I, I, you know, I'm just wondering whether he's still around. Anyway, I hope so. He's, he's quite a nice old, nice old chap. Well, I say old chap, he's younger than me anyway. What are your next steps as regards this crucial information that will change our international perspective on the risks and the dangers of nuclear if it's taken seriously and known widely enough. Yes, all right. Well, there are two things that I'm going to do. The first thing I'm st I've started, I've started a campaign in Europe where I'm going to go to all of the people that I know who are anti-nuclear and I'm going to get them in their own countries. And some of these countries will be countries that don't have nuclear power, so they won't really care very much about what they do in, in the government there. And I'm going to get them to trigger the, the suicide clause in the Euratom Directive. Because all of these little countries like Slovenia and Luxembourg and Malta and, you know, tiny little places, places with no nuclear power. I mean, and the Baltic states, you've got Latvia, Lithuania, no, no nuclear power stations. You've got Estonia, well, Norway. You've got lots of little countries that would be prepared to consider the fact that the Euratom Directive is, is not built upon rock, but it's built upon sand. And now that this stuff is in the literature, we could say, look, here is the evidence that it's built upon sand and you've got to re-justify it. So they could do all that. So that's my plan. My plan is, is to have this re-justification campaign in Europe. And that's easily done. We've, we've made a number of websites and we've put templates for demanding re-justification. We've put lists of all the people, all the Euratom contacts in each of the European countries. So anybody, you know, Mrs. Smith from the corner shop, can download this uh, template and she can put Mrs. Smith at the top and sign Mrs. Smith at the bottom and send it to the person in her country who is responsible for justifying your atom. I mean, in fact, uh, Sean McGee has helped me a lot. Arclight's helped me a lot in this. You know, He's already applied to the Irish government and demanded that they re-justify your atom in Ireland. And of course, it means something in Ireland because, you know, they've got Sellafield just across the road and they've got all of the radiation from Sellafield coming up on the beaches there. When it comes to the Euratom Agreement, 
Is policy there set by simple majority, meaning if you get enough of these small countries to say, wait a minute, let's trigger the suicide clause and reexamine this information, will that do it? Or are the countries weighted in terms of who has nuclear, who doesn't, or population, or any other factor? Well, the way I see this is that for many, many years, the what I call the nuclear military lobby, the nuclear military organization or, or, or whatever, you know, the them in, in the us and them argument, have infiltrated the upper levels of all the organizations in Europe and probably in the world with people who believe in their operation. So I have no doubt that most of these uh, most of these organizations in the member state countries will have a lot of pro-nuclear people in there, but not all of them, not all of them. And I also think that a lot of these people are just acting a bit like robots. They haven't really thought it through. And I have a sort of belief that there are some good people and some moral people out there and people who might change their mind when they actually see the scientific evidence. And frankly, it only needs one country. It only needs one country. And this and this is done in one country, incidentally. So, for instance, Luxembourg for example, or Belgium, for example, and they've got childhood leukemia clusters near Belgian nuclear power stations, might say, well, we think that actually there is something to be said here, so we're going to justify it in Belgium. They're entitled to do that under European law. They can re-justify it in the member state country. So that's the first thing. It would only need one country to do that, and the rest of them would go down like dominoes. And now the second thing I can do, you know, given enough energy and so forth, because it involves quite a lot of work, is I can continue to publish articles like this or research articles in the peer review literature. And that's something I've been doing more and more lately because my status, if you like, my credibility in, in the scientific community has been increasing. And once you've got a paper into, into this thing like genetics and the other one that I did with Inga that went into the other journal, the Korean journal, uh, Environmental Health and Toxicology, which is another posh journal, the more you get in there, the more people read what you do and the more the referees are likely to put through the next thing that you do and so on. So, so long as I stay alive and manage to keep my marbles, I can write quite a few scientific papers. And so that, that I'm going to win the scientific battle again and again and again and again. And eventually the weight of all the scientific energy that I put into this will push their castle down. For those listeners who wish to learn more and to read your papers, read what this is about, where can they go to get more information? Yes, well, most of it I put up on Green Audit. So I have this website called www.greenaudit.org. So most of these papers are up there. Or else they should look on Facebook because, I mean, I work so fast now that the, the way in which I communicate with the fan club, if you like, or whatever, you know, the people who are interested is I just stick my stuff up on Facebook. I, I know I should do more, but really I've only got two arms and two legs and I've got to, and, you know, and I've got to keep warm and I've got to do other things. And So there's a limit to my ability to, to cope with all of this. And also I'm skinned, of course, too. I just sort of do my best. But yes, Green Audit is the place to look, or the Low Level Radiation Campaign, or else um, my friend in Latvia set up a website called Chris Busby Exposed. I haven't been too good at this, I have to say, Libby. I'm not, I, I'm not really somebody who spends their time telling everybody what I'm doing. You know, I tend to put my energy into doing it rather than advertising what I've done. It does require a whole other skill set and a lot of energy to keep your feet in both of these arenas. Would that we had somebody who would take care of that for you. Is there anything else that we haven't covered that you would like to speak on at this time? The other thing that I'm involved in at the moment is looking at what's called the dose response, okay? This is very important with regard to radiation risk because it's been generally assumed, and it's built into the radiation risk model, that if you double the exposure, you double the effect. I don't know if this is going to be too technical, but I'll say it anyway. All of the ways in which radiation epidemiologists have been working in the last, what, 20 years, have increasingly been on the basis of fitting single straight line to data relating to different dose levels. So you get a little bit of dose, bit of, bigger bit of dose, bigger bit of dose, bigger bit of dose. And so what they do is they draw a straight line through all of the cancers for all those different dose groups. But actually what we've discovered and what's clear in the evidence is in fact the biggest effect is at the lowest dose. 
And then from then on, it goes down. And the reason for that is that cancer always starts in a single cell. We know that from all sorts of experiments that have been done and from an analyses of the way in which cancers develop. They start, it starts in a single cell. And so if you kill that cell, if the dose is big enough to kill the cell, you can't get a cancer, do you see? So as you go up from the very little doses and you go up and up and up and up and up, first of all, what you do is you cause mutations in the cells, which then lead to cancer. But at above a certain dose, and it's quite a low dose, you start to kill the cells. And so you can't get any cancers because dead cells don't give you cancers, right? So this whole idea that you've got this thing called the linear no-threshold dose response, which is how they define their model, is just quite wrong. I mean, it's, it's, it's implausible biologically for the reasons that I've just given. I mean, give, let me give you an example about babies. We found after Chernobyl that there was a big increase in congenital malformations. If you look at the congenital malformation rate in all of the countries in Europe after Chernobyl and compare it with before Chernobyl. As I said to you before, this represents a 1,000-fold excess risk in congenital malformation at low dose. But the trouble is at high dose, you don't get congenital malformations. And the reason is that the babies never make it out of the womb. You see, you get miscarriages. And there are no statistics on the miscarriages after Chernobyl. Well, of course, they don't have any statistics on miscarriages after Chernobyl. You know, there's no, no studies of miscarriages after Chernobyl. But I can tell you, we did a study of miscarriages after the, for the test veterans. I and mean, one of the things we discovered with the test veterans, I did a study which I published in 2012. And there was another woman called Rabbit Roth who did one in 1999. And both of these studies showed there was a tenfold increase in congenital malformations in the test veterans' children, and it was about also eight tenfold in the grandchildren as well. But what I did in my study was I asked about miscarriages. And so when we looked at our study, we found that there was an enormous increase in miscarriages also in the, the two. So first of all, we had an enormous increase in miscarriages in the wives of the test veterans after they came back from the test sites. And the second thing is that a lot of them were infertile. So a lot of them couldn't have babies they'd been damaged to the point that the babies didn't even implant in the womb, you see. This business about the linear no-threshold dose response is an important issue and biologically implausible, and it also affects... It's another reason why the current radiation risk model is, is wrong. Because human beings aren't like bits of wire, you know, you just can't hang weights on them and they stretch and they stretch and they stretch and you measure the weight, you, you, you know, put the weight mass on one axis and then the stretch on the other axis and get a straight line. Because human beings respond to their environment. So if you do something to them, something cuts in to prevent that from causing damage, like, like for instance, sunlight and sun tanning. People sun tan in order to protect themselves from sunlight. And the other thing is if you go up a mountain, your blood supply changes the, the, the nature of the hemoglobin so that it picks up more oxygen. There are lots and lots of things that happen that make human beings much more sophisticated than the sort of ridiculously stupid models that these physicists who are involved in these risk models imagine. What are you doing to protect yourself during this time? Seems like you've lifted your head up quite high as a potential target. Yes. Well, I mean, if I disappear, then you'll know why. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's hope that that is never a story on Nuclear Hot Seat. You know, the thing is, I thought about this long ago, and I started this out in 1995, or no, less than that, 1992, I started this game. And I thought, I mean, I was much more frightened then. I thought, oh, well, you know, I mean, this is really important stuff. They're going to bump me off, this and that. But actually, nobody has tried to, well, as far as I know, nobody's tried to kill me. I mean, I've, I've had a few frights and, and, and a few attempts to frighten me and so on. But, you know, I'm quite a tough guy, quite hard to, you know, I mean, it's not, I'm not going to just lie down and let them run over me. <laughs> Chris, thank you so much for the work that you are doing. It could be key to turning this whole thing around. And I think we might win this, yeah. I think we might win this, Libby. We might. Unfortunately, we did not. Dr. Christopher Busby. For more information and access to Dr. Busby's rich archive of peer-reviewed studies and articles, go to his website, greenaudit.org. 
And if you are in one of the countries that are capable of invoking the suicide clause in the Euratom Agreement, use greenaudit.org to contact Chris directly and learn exactly how to proceed. You, yes you, could be the one who brings it down. And we will have a link up to Chris's article in The Ecologist on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 289. Chris Busby was very kind at the end of our interview, where he volunteered the following to me. I was just going to say thank you for what you do. And, and, uh, and, and without, without people spreading the word, you know, it, 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 nobody would know what was going on. I was talking to a, a philosophy professor recently in relation to another, some other work that I do. And he said that now it's generally conceded amongst his philosophy friends that we live in an era which he calls post-truth. And, and we had a good laugh about that because I said, you know, what's the difference between post-truth and lying? But basically his point is that, that truth is now not to do with facts, but to do with the interpretation of facts. And, and the people who shout the loudest on the Internet tend to be the people who, 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 who sort of create the truth, you see. And so therefore, without people like you doing that, you know, that they would be creating a truth that would be totally bogus. But with people like you interviewing me and, and, and getting this stuff out there, it creates a kind of little pinnacle of, of accuracy in, in the midst of all the sea of lies. Thank you, Chris Busby. And of course, none of this work, bringing you interviews like this one and so many more, could happen without your support. So help Nuclear Hot Seat start the new year right with a donation of any size. We make it easy. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the big red Donate button, and know that we are grateful for anything you can contribute. So do what you can today. And if you can't contribute financially, I could always use an add-a-girl or two, because support of any kind, of every kind, is always appreciated. Activist shout-out! When I congratulated Nuclear-News.net on having reached over 2 million visitors, I neglected to mention some of the names of the people involved in it. Just to review, I want to give gratitude and a hoo to Hervé Courtois, Noel Washope, and our own Sean Mickey. Bravo for a job well done. Let's get it to 3 million real fast. Here's today's final thought. I have many thoughts and absolutely no coherence about them yet, so I'm skipping it this week. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, January 3rd, 2017. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from TriCityHerald.com and the excellent reporting of Annette Carey, CapeCodTimes.com and the superb journalism of Christine Legere, abqjournal.com, santafenewmexican.com, tetratech.com, deunrenard.wordpress.com, nuclear-news.net, japantimes.com, fukuleaks.com, and simply info, mainichi.jp, federalregister.gov, countercurrents.org, beyondnuclear.org, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission event reports, courtesy Erica Gray of the unofficial Sierra Club Nuclear Free Campaign, and the Resolute Planet Protectors who gather at the Nuclear Hot Seat site on Facebook, which you are all invited to come to, visit, join us, scroll, like us, share our posts with your family and friends. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompaniment by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2017, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that Nuclear Hot Seat is downloaded in 112 countries which means that there are a lot of people around the world concerned with nuclear issues. That means that they have had their nuclear wake-up call, as have we all. 
So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. <laughs>